This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Thank you for joining today's webinar. I am Dr. Eric Weaver, Executive Director of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all to today's webinar, The Digital Health Landscape, The New Decade. So we're gonna be referencing an intelligence brief that came out earlier this month that was done in collaboration with the ACLC and Innovacer. And there's a link that's gonna be in the chat where you can download this brief. And I uh, would love to talk to you about that, and you're going to learn more about it today. The ACLC, by the way, uh, is an organization that provides peer learning around competencies for value-based care. And we believe that educating and reskilling the workforce will be central to the value-based care movement. So definitely check us out. All right. So today we have Dr. David Nace, Chief Medical Officer of Innovacer. His experience as a physician, a senior executive in both health insurance and technology, an advisor to industry and chair of the Primary Care Collaborative, among many other stellar accomplishments, makes him an awesome guest. I, I can't wait to talk to him today about the future of digital health. And then we have Edward W. Marks. What can I say? He's the chief digital officer for Tech Manager Health and Life Sciences, a CDO. He oversees digital strategy and execution for providers, payers, pharma, and biotech. Ed has a phenomenal CIO career in leading the development and execution of digital strategies that have positioned his organizations for success and long-term relevance, including leading organizations like Cleveland Clinic, NYC Health and Hospital, Texas Health Resources, and more. So guys, I couldn't think of a better way to have a conversation. You know, you're, you both are just the perfect leaders to spend an hour with and, and just discuss the future of digital transformation. So how about we get the party started? Sounds great. Awesome. Let's do it. I thought, guys, a great place to start would be to, to really think about what is digital health. And we really have to think about how do we leverage a digital health infrastructure to look at 
care team empowerment, provide actionable insights at the point of care and looking at automation and efficiencies, transforming care across the continuum, really bringing disparate, what was once siloed organizations across the continuum and creating that cohesion, leveraging that technology in a way that's trusted and then creating that patient engagement, which is so vital to outcomes. And I think about all the things that are happening right now in the future. Right now in digital health, I mean, we have things like mobile devices and apps that are being used in healthcare, wearables, telehealth, personalized medicine, and all these different modalities, you know, they're coupled with advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and it's driving a revolution in healthcare that we're going to talk about today. And I, I just thought, you know, as we think about all this, you know, there's this concept that was put out there through the what we know is the Gartner hype cycle. And it's an illustration that kind of shows how new technologies often become highly visible early on. And there's this inflated sense of expectations, but then things kind of settle in to maybe a trough of disillusionment and really modest production gains. And I wanted to ask you both, as we're thinking about what is digital health and how it's gonna enable the future, what should we be thinking about all these new technologies like AI and NLP and IoT and blockchain? Is there actually stake with all this sizzle when it comes to leveraging these innovations and bringing about true value in healthcare? I wanna hear from Ed first. Yeah, that's always the uh, conundrum, right? Who goes first? Hey, I'll, I'll jump in. Again, thanks, Eric, for, for having me. It's a uh, wonderful treat to, to be here today and, and also to be a co-panelist along with David. So yeah, I think we're in the height of inflated expectations. Still, everyone's talking about digital health. It's like gonna transform healthcare and things are gonna be totally different. And I think we're still in that top of that hype I think the disillusionment, I think we're going to get there pretty quick and then stabilize. And, and so the one thing that's sort of missing, you know, is always at the, what's at the center of it all. So that's why for me, there's different definitions. There's no right or wrong answer for digital health. But for me, I'm just a really simple person, as you'll figure out pretty quick. And I just think of it as experience. So experience enabled by technology. So technology is a piece of it, but a small piece and it's really empowered by design. So I'm all about the experience, whether it's a clinician experience, caregiver, patient, organization experience, community experience, but it's really around design. So how do we take the tech and then create the right design? So I think inflated expectations, like we're way up here, we're trying to figure out our way, everyone you know, thinks it's the cure-all, and, and I think we will figure it out, and we are seeing early signs of that. And I really appreciate those comments. And Eric, thank you so much. This is just a great opportunity. I really want to applaud the work that you've done at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. You know, I remember when Mike Levitt and Mark McClellan got together with this idea is we have to do something to transform care in this country, right? To change the efficiency of care, to get better value of care and lower the costs of care. And I think Ed hit it on the nail, the other part of that, which is to change the experience that everyone has in the healthcare ecosystem, because it's awful. There's so much friction in healthcare and everyone I meet, including family members, they all, you know, I just bring it up and they all know about it. And we haven't really accomplished a lot. And, you know, your members at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative have come together, the leading providers in the industry to really try to help to figure this out, to work together. You know, I think to your point, that care is one is symbolic of we have to work together to figure this out together. So I think to that point, Ed, your comments around technology, I remember an architect told me, a good friend architect said, we can get technology to do anything you want. <laughs> the question is, right, what is it you want to do? 
And so I think there is one big change. With the High Tech Act, we tried to do something. I think we sort of cemented the world in technology and in a workflow that existed already. That's okay. We collected a lot of information. But the cloud, the movement to the cloud, the movement to the cloud is a huge change for everybody, right? We all carry this around. We have great experiences. We have control over our data. So Century 21 will help with that. And we're able to really navigate things efficiently, automate things, right? Google Maps tells me turn right, I'll save 13 minutes if I there's an accident ahead. I mean, so it automates a lot of processes and gives us insights and it connects us with all the other people we want to be connected to, retailers, to Amazon, whatever. Gosh, could we do that in healthcare? Can we get people to move to the cloud to kind of harmonize these different systems instead of dealing with all these installed silos we have with older technology? The opportunity, I think, with the pandemic has opened some eyes to that. As we've done Zoom from home, as we've begun to think about, oh, there's now we have a bigger cost issue. We have to do something. Maybe we can get over that. We'll get into this in this talk, but you know, security is not a fear about the cloud. It's, it's just as much of a fear to install it. And we can walk through all these different parameters. But you've outlined here very nicely, we have to transform the way we deliver care. We have to use technology that we trust. And we really want to improve the efficiency, effectiveness of care and engage our people so they have better experience. Well, I think you both just outlined the awesome opportunity that we have with digital health in the future. And, you know, certainly COVID-19 is a flashpoint, but we, it's not lost on any of us that are listening, that are a part of this conversation in the Care is One community. There's clearly uh, adoption barriers to the future. So these digital health adoption barriers, we think about this. I mean, we're, we're trying to make this seismic shift, which is really comes down to 20% of our economy. And it's really redefining and reimagining how we deliver healthcare. And there's tech enablement in an industry that is decades behind other industries in terms of uh, personalized consumer technologies. I would love to hear your perspective on something that's really important to me. And that's, you know, how do we bridge the digital divide to ensure health equity? You know, even though we don't really talk about it this way, access to broadband internet, it's a social determinant in this day and age. And especially given the expansion of telehealth in the last year, which you referenced Dr. Nace, and if we're to truly care as one in this new era of connected care and virtual visits, I mean, we have to make one principle sacrosanct, and that's the digital revolution. It can't simply just make only the wealthy healthier. During the COVID-19 lockdowns, you know, we saw how telehealth became the primary mode for supporting patients in their home, and it provided huge benefits. But we also saw what we've known for a long time, and there's people that have access to smartphones, but they don't have a data plan. And they can't plug into the connection that's made possible through virtual care delivery. So I wanted to ask you both, what are your thoughts about how do we overcome this one big barrier with bridging that digital divide in communities to really address connectivity to the Internet as a true social determinant of health for which it has now become? So one of my mentors, um, former CEO of my New York City Health and Hospitals, uh, Dr. Ram Raju, he used to always say there's no health equity without social equity. And so to your point, Eric, it really is more of a social challenge than certainly a healthcare specific challenge. And there's definitely things we must do as leaders in addition to raising the awareness. And we've all seen studies, even when I was in Cleveland, the areas surrounding Cleveland had the highest rate of infant mortality amongst 
African Americans. And here we were, you know, in an amazing city for healthcare. So there is a there is a problem. When we were publishing a book in 2019 called Voices of Innovation, there was a study done, and this surprised me that 25% of the population in the city of Cleveland did not have access to broadband. This was in the city. This wasn't rural. This was in the city. And so it just, and that's two years old data, but I think it's still pretty relevant and indicative of, of some of the challenges today. So we really need to make sure that everyone has access to the great tools. So, you know, we can talk about the great tools. I know we will about, you know, RPM and, you know, hospital at home and all those sort of different things. But if it only works for, you know, half the population or even 75%, that's not good enough. We need solutions that work for everyone. So definitely from a government perspective and, and helping bring grants as has been happening with the Cures Act and CARES Act and, and the different things that have been going on to bring more money so that it can be invested in local communities to make sure that broadband is available. And But even the technology itself, you know, we need to develop some new applications that don't require ha high bandwidth to work. And I think we're getting there. But there's different things like that. And I think us as leaders, and I'm glad you brought it up, Eric, it's really key that, that we keep focus on this and keep pushing on it until we have solutions for everyone that works. Yeah, those are excellent points. You know, think about the concept of health equity. Let's say you have a building like the Supreme Court building. I just picked one. I was in my mind. It has all these stairs. And you think, well, health equity is about leveling the playing field. So if you've got somebody in a wheelchair, somebody handicapped who can't use the stairs, you could say, oh, gosh, we have such a problem. You know, we don't have good access to the building. But we, you can, by building a solution for them that is unique to them, that allows them to level the playing field and have equal access. And so those who have cell phones, smartphones, without data plans, what is it we can do to level the playing field for those folks? I mean, these are the kinds of things that we need to think about. I will point out, this has been such a huge issue in our country. We have literally the lowest quality of healthcare in this country of developed countries and have for 30 years. And yet we have pockets of excellence that shine beacons across our planet that people come here for those beacons. And that's a great example of the inequities in healthcare. There are two underlying things I'd like to speak about. There is bias. So I'll get away from the tech for a minute. There is bias within us as people, these presumptions, these, you know, I'm trying to avoid the word prejudices, but they're biases based on what we learn, what we, and this happens in healthcare. And I, I've been learning to be more cognizant. You go to see a geriatric patient, you ask them questions different than you see a 50-year-old who looks like an executive. You believe, oh, they must be smarter, they can handle this information, the other person, right? So on and so forth. Someone who's from a, a different culture, right? Someone who's lower socioeconomic, you make these assumptions and you're not even aware of them. So that's an issue we have to figure out as well in terms of leveling the playing field. Maybe technology can help us with that in some degree. I think by empowering the patient, that will help to eliminate much of that. And I think giving the data and information into control of the patient may help with that. But again, things we think about, every time we look at a solution, it's brought with other potential biases as well. So that's one thing. And, and then the other is just financial equity. So I've been part of this uh, advisory board for this financial health network with the idea of how do we think about equity for health it's so hard. Hospitals have these charge masters. They don't even know. It goes back to all these installed systems they have. <laughs> Smiling. They don't even know what their costs are. So they have this charge master, which which has prices on it that are like five, tenfold what they actually are anywhere else in their contracts. 
And people who don't have much money, they just bill them off the charge master and then they use that collection, all kinds of like it's such a game because nobody can have a singular view of what's going on. And I think if we can solve that problem, connect people, payers, providers, connect people within a system, within a hospital, and help to solve that problem around transparency and unification of the data and information. I mean, that's something that we we struck, continue to work on here at Innovacer is how do you harmonize, get people to be able to access their information more useful way. And we can start to see and then address these issues of inequities. You know, guys, I wanted to ask you one more thing that's on the barrier, and these are great responses, but I'm, I'm also thinking about the baby boomer population, the folks born between 1946 and 1964, there's 71 million of them. There's 10,000 a day that are aging into Medicare. We have this silver tsunami. I know it's listed here as a barrier and, you know, there is a perception that, you know, maybe the older population won't as readily embrace uh, new digital health technologies. Can you speak a little bit about that in terms of where that population segment fits into this, this new transformation that's underway in healthcare? Yeah, it's always a danger to do personal reference because it's an N of one. But I, I do think it's a little indicative. But first, before I give you that example, the trends are showing that it is being adopted, not as, at the same level as millennials, but it is being adopted by even the older generations. So that that's good. But at the heart of it, you know, I had a I had a podcast guest recently happened to be my dad, who's 87, independent. And I asked him these questions, right? Dad, how come you don't like, you know, your telemedicine visits, which he was forced to do during COVID? He goes, now it's kind of a funny answer, but think about it. He said, uh, and he has this German, thick German accent, you know, and he's, he's like, Edvard, that's my name in German. You know, he's like, they kiss me. She kisses me. So his doctor, you know, kisses him on the cheek. So he goes in, it's a big social event and she kisses him on the cheek. It, it's affection, it's physical touch, mm. something we could never get. Like, as we talk here, I couldn't reach out and give you a hug. And that's really important as part of the healing process. The second thing, just in casual conversation, he said, hey, what, what's that on your, on your scalp? And they found an additional, so he had some skin cancer on his scalp. They found additional skin cancer just through observation they would never have seen on camera because that wasn't the reason for the visit. They wouldn't have been you know, looking for something like that. Potential misdiagnosis. So believe me, I'm a huge believer. I think as you'll figure out throughout this webinar in digital transformation and, and all the tools. But from an older generation who needs that sort of that social event, they don't have much else going on. It's like a big event. They like that. We we would say, oh my gosh, I'm too busy to do that. But they like it. There's that physical touch that's hard to replicate in any other way. And then there's that intangible, like I mentioned, where oh, I just happened to notice something. Maybe it was the way they acted, a tick, or in my dad's case, you know, a lesion on his skin. So that's my view on it. Yeah, you've illustrated, Ed. There are unforeseen inadvertent consequences to technology. And the high-tech EMR implementation is a perfect example. So my father, who passed two years ago, but you know, I spent a lot of time with him his last two or three years of his life. And he had the same primary care doc, who I knew very well, and was close to the family for about 35 years. And he, he said to me the last two years of when he was with us, he said, you know, David, speaking to me, David, I, you know, Joe doesn't speak to me anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, he doesn't talk to me anymore. I don't think he cares. I'm like, well, like what do you mean? He's known it for like, I talked to him like on the phone. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, he goes, he's too busy. I said, what do you mean he's too busy? Too busy to see you? And he said, no, he's too busy working on the computer. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect example.
Well, how about we shift gears a little bit and talk about these drivers of adoption? Dr. Nace, I wanted to read a quote that was in this intelligence brief that Innovacer released with the ACLC, and you were quoted as saying, and I'll just read it here, uh, historically, the healthcare sector, among all other sectors, has been reluctant to catch up with the pace of adopting newer technologies. It can be attributed to several factors like data security, complex regulatory environments, or simply the need for preserving business continuity. Against this backdrop, with healthcare finally moving into the cloud, the boost to digital innovation is inevitable. So can you both elaborate on how cloud-based technology, along with you know, some of these other things that we're seeing here on the slide with technology, deregulation and regulatory flexibilities, shifting workforce demographics and consumerism, how is all of this driving health transformation in our industry? The one thing that maybe I'll point out, yeah, certainly the cloud, clearly, I think everyone's gonna know, right? Scalability, the speed to market, in some cases cost, not all cases, in some cases, but the ability to turn on and turn off really quickly is really important in scale, you know, globally, you're no longer limited by geography. So those are all the reasons why the cloud is kind of making these things happen. But, you know, the other thing is that the entrance of retail and the entrance of payers into providing healthcare. Now the providers who have been very reluctant to adopt and move some of these digital tools forward, like uh, let's just talk COVID really quick, right? We, we went from less than 1% of outpatient visits being telemedicine, pre-COVID, during COVID, the average of averages was something like 60%, 65%. Now we're back down to 12%. So there's this resistance, if you will, sorry to be a little bit provocative, but while that resistance is happening, you've got retail coming in. Hey, I'm CVS, I'm Walgreens, I'm Walmart. I make it really easy and watch out Amazon, right? And then you have payers who now have more primary care than do providers, more alignment with the primary care base, which is a historic foundation of a hospital provider. So that is going away. So anyways, those things are helping drive some of the digital health adoption, but maybe not so much in the provider specific place, but amongst payers and amongst these retail or digital first entrants. So there's a lot of drivers, including these three, and all of them are leveraging the cloud. And I would say all of these innovative primary care groups, you know, Oak Street, or all the ones that you talked about, they all leverage the cloud. Optum, Cigna, Humana, they've all bought practices. They're all moving to the cloud. Walgreens, Walmart, I mean, they're all, getting into primary care, moving to the cloud. So someone better open their eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't rehearse this, uh, but David and I, I, we're all in the same wavelength here. It's, it's time for adoption. Well, I wanted to pose this poll question to the Care as One community. So we have several hundred attendees today representing constituents from large multi-specialty practices, primary care groups, post-acute care providers, health systems, clinically integrated networks. And we're all on this value journey trying to figure out how to lean in to this digital health transformation. So Ed and David, I just wanted to ask you maybe if you could provide some additional commentary. You know, we talked about this retail disruption. You know, how is that going to settle in within the milieu of some of these incumbent stakeholders that I mentioned? Like, what should some of our attendees be thinking about these new entrants into the healthcare marketplace and how that's going to maybe influence an acceleration of digital health. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be really interested in, you know, it all goes back to the experience and we've all talked about empowering the patient. And now we're talking about digital front doors and the 21st century 
Cures Act really allows some of this data to get in the control of the patient and maybe be able to download an app of their choice and give it the data, which is what we do in our iPhone every day. Yeah, yeah I think it's really going to behoove, you know, I, well, I think there's a, basically a clear mandate now. So if you were a little bit hesitant for a variety of reasons, I think on the provider side, again, sorry to be a little bit provocative here, but well, one, it's a huge change. And then two, there's a lot of fixed costs. And so you've got already got the building. So you want to see your buildings utilized. You don't want to see them empty. So, you know, you're going to drive patients to them. I, I get messages from my clinicians all the time. Hey, it's safe to come back, come back, come back. And I, when I read those messages, I'm like, are you crazy? Wouldn't you rather tell me to download the app, which I have, of course, but start engaging on the app and doing televideo visits instead and looking at other ways to engage me and really be more about well-being and well care and send me some things that I might select that will help me stay well, maybe because you know my history, maybe because I've had knee injuries in the past or something, you know, you're reminding me about different exercises or not to cross my legs while I'm sitting down, you know, that those sort of things. And that heads towards value-based care, which we'll talk about in a, in a couple of minutes. But I would think it's a call to action. The other thing I would do is I would look at what my competitors are doing. So your competitor is no longer the health system across town, right? That traditionally it was, all right, it's us against them. There's two health systems in our town. No, that's the least of your worries today. Your worry is retail and your worry is digital first entrance and your worry are payers that you're not working with and collaborating with. So what I would do is sort of adopt their mentality, their strategies, and say, look, that's what consumers want, because it goes back to where we talked about consumerism. Most consumers, we talked about how the aging consumer, maybe not as much, but still they are very interested and have high satisfaction rates with telemedicine and, and digital first type of methodologies. But how are they doing things? Because consumers want them and then replicate that. But the twist is that I'm your local provider. So you've got the win. You just need to take the action. So Hopefully, Eric, that answered the question without getting too many people upset with us, some of my viewpoints. I think you did well, Ed. You know, great way to toe the line. And, you know, let's see how we did on this. Okay, so which of the following are represent the most significant barriers? And it, wow, it's a it's a close, close poll here. I, I guess the edge goes to lack of governance and staffing to support digital health. And, you know, that's an important one. Yeah, and I know we haven't really talked about that yet, but, you know, certainly something I think uh, a lot of the members in the CARES One community are trying to figure out. You know what I would take away from this, Eric, is that there's a lot of barriers. I hear you. Well, guys, I thought we'd shift gears now and talk about the evolving landscape. We've talked a lot about these different modalities in addition to telehealth. I mean, there's almost a ubiquitous environment of digital health technology tools like wearables, remote patient monitoring, AI. I won't list all of those exhaustively, but there's also these trends that are coming about as a result of the use of some of these tools. And Edward, you, you did a really great job in your book, Healthcare Digital Transformation, and you outlined like five major areas of emphasis, and they, they align quite well with what we're seeing on the screen in terms of the trends. But you talked about how we need to be focusing on enabling online patient experiences. So that's the digital front door. We need to be thinking about improving caregiver experiences. There's also you know, areas of focus around digitally enabling administrative functions through automation 
uh, you know, looking at enabling wellness in our communities, which addresses the social determinants of health challenge that we all know about. And there's creating new lines of revenue, which really comes down to adoption of value-based payment. So when I think about all of, the, all of these areas, I can't help but think how personalization and localization are table stakes here for healthcare providers. And you know, I'm just wondering how healthcare organizations should be thinking about how to provide access to information and immediate fulfillment of healthcare needs in this post-COVID era. You know, we've talked about how consumer expectations are shifting and there's been an expansion of telehealth. And there's also what you both mentioned earlier, this need for human interaction at the point of care and how we need to kind of make sure that's a predominant focus. So as we're shifting into this new normal after the pandemic, I mean, what should provider organizations be thinking about in terms of creating consumer-centric solutions versus maybe looking for partnerships with tech innovators. I mean, what's the, the balance in terms of capturing and leveraging technology for these trends, but also looking at unique partnerships and in finding ways to overcome some of the challenges we just saw in the, in the prior poll? I mean, there's so much here. You know, adoption of value-based payments has been a struggle, and well, I'm going to table that for, we've got lots of other forms that we discuss that, certainly ACLC. Front door, I think, you know, we're learning from retail, as you pointed out, Ed, and really trying to figure out. I think in the pandemic, I've had all my physical therapy, my dermatology visits, my regular interactions with my primary care. I ain't going back to the old way of doing things, sorry. <laughs> and for that sort of care, I mean, it's so much helpful, I mean, just to do it that way. You know, why you take a half a day off and go to an office and find a parking space and fill out another clipboard? I mean, it's just, that's the friction. I want to talk a little bit about the social determinants of care. And we're doing a lot here at Innovacer. We're, we're connecting, care is one, connecting the health system with the housing system, the transportation systems, the financial system in order to help. And that, that's tough work because everybody wants to keep their own budget, hold their money, and their cultures are different. But we now have the capability to connect them electronically. And so just like I, as a primary care physician, I have always, when I practice, want to send somebody to a cardiologist may not be in my practice, may not be in my health system. I send him, I call these closed loop referrals. I'll send him or her a packet of information after I uh, do a shared decision-making with my patient electronically. My patient has the same packet. I'll know when they arrive. They know exactly what I'm looking for and they get all the workup information. Okay? They can know what the questions are for the patient. And when they're done, both the patient and the cardiologist can send me information back about how we would work together. Either here's some guidance for me as a primary or happy to work with you, Dr. Nace. Uh, here's what I suggest. I'm happy to take that piece of it. So we can now do that with other systems that are not in the healthcare system and address this huge driver of healthcare costs called the social determinants of care. There's no need to merge budgets. There's no need to acquire people. We can use technology. And it requires collaboration, which means we have to learn to work. You know, a couple of quick things, Eric, that I might add to what David said so well. We're seeing an emergence, which I think is a good sign of chief digital officers and chief transformation officers. I think basically CEOs got frustrated, like their C-suite wasn't getting, were getting things done. And they were like, I'm going to bring in a chief transformation officer and I'm going to bring in a chief digital officer and all those things. And, and in some cases, it really works well and others, maybe it doesn't change much. But I think it's a good attempt. And, and it does show acknowledgement that, hey, we can learn something from other industries, which I think is really important. So healthcare for forever, we've been sort of closed system. And in order to hire someone, they had to have 20 years of healthcare experience. 
which is crazy, right? You don't want that all the time. You want someone who has no healthcare experience. So we're starting to see that with the emergence of some of these roles, that these roles, these people are coming from Disney and other industries, other retail industries. And I think that helps the perspective. It does, you don't have to do that at the C level. You could do it below. But whatever it takes for your particular situation, I think it's important to get external viewpoints brought inside. And, and the second thing, and I think, Eric, you touched, you said the word, or maybe it was David, but partnerships. This is too big to do alone. Depending on a company, but typical provider company, whenever they try something on their own, it's a pretty heavy lift, digital transformation. So never hesitate. And I won't go into examples because, you know, I don't want to talk about specific vendors or anything, but I've done that a lot in my career. And we partnered with an external company and it really helped move the, the ball because they also had experience from outside of healthcare and brought that to bear. So think open. It's just like we talk about, you know, from a tech point of view, like fire capabilities is open APIs, you know, interoperability. Think about that in terms of your business. Don't think just healthcare, but think outside and bring in all that thinking that's been out there for some time and then apply it to healthcare. And then you'll start transforming. Well, that's a great point, Ed. And I can't help but think about how the healthcare landscape is changing. The pandemic, and we've talked about this, you know, it's changing the patient care paradigm. And there's some ripple effects in terms of the patient behavior and expectations. You know, we've talked about the increased use of telehealth, remote patient monitoring is a, a game changer as well. And then uh, patients really expecting video conferencing. And, you know, I'm thinking about how the landscape's changing. And, you know, we, you mentioned it earlier, Ed, we have this legacy model, this fee-for-service, big business, you know, medical industrial complex that's heavily regulated, it's massively subsidized, and it's full of all these structural distortions, and consumerism really doesn't drive change in that model like it does other industries. But now we're at kind of at this flashpoint where consumers demand more, and they're asking more of healthcare than they ever have in the past. And there's this consumer revolution that I think is almost like we're at this precipice where it's on point, it's driving change. And a, a big barrier to that, I think, and you know, we see some of these listed on the screen, like you know, remote patient monitoring, telehealth, but also how do we think about democratizing patient data and having continuous real-time access to, to data? You know, we've talked a lot about it over the years through the inception of the Meaningful Use Program and creating interoperability. And I know like there's varying points of view in terms of the progress there, but I wanted to ask you both, what do you think needs to take place in this new era in terms of delivering on the promise of a unified patient record? I mean, are we going to overcome maybe some of the unintended consequences of HIPAA and maybe some of the intentional consequences of EHR vendor data blocking? And in terms of uh, maybe Fire and Blue Button 2.0, is that going to really become the game changer in creating data activation and liquidity to really drive the new value economy? Part of the concept of data blocking, it's a somewhat political term. On the one hand, it is true in the sense that it is the business model of EMR vendors. And it's also in the business model of physicians. Like they're incented in order not to collaborate. <laughs> so I... I mean, that's, I'm not trying to blame the EMR vendors per se, because the fee-for-service system does the same thing for physicians, right, in the healthcare system. And then the other is, from a technology standpoint, our legacy of installed solutions, and many of us had this before when we used to download an application and load it onto our computer, you know, that was before SaaS. The data model of these systems and the EMRs were built to serve the application, meaning the EMR. And I could talk about other applications as well. That's a big thing for them to surmount. So it really is this concept of having data 
I mean, a term I've used a lot is just data liquidity, but being able to, in a trusted way, get data to be shared and accessed by all these groups and then harmonize. Amazon does a great job of it. We all buy stuff from Amazon. What you don't see is all the other consumers are connected to the platform, all the retail, all the wholesale, all the supply chain, all the manufacturing. I mean, they're all connected with their own view. And the data is all harmonized with people who have their own view that's correct for them. And this is where we need to go in healthcare, to have the ecosystem collaborate in a way when people give authority to collaborate and get their unique and, and appropriate point of view. Steve Klaskow, CEO of Jefferson, good friend, he often talks about, I want to see a day where people come and they say, uh, where's Jefferson Health System? It's on my phone. It's on my computer at home. It's on my phone. And then somebody says, well, isn't, don't they have a building? Like, and they say, well, oh yeah, I think they still do surgery at 13th and Chester. I'm not sure. I think there's a place. I mean, that's sort of the beautiful vision of where we could go. My friend, John Holamka, who's working in Mayo, they've been able to do ICU level care, ICU level care in the home. They've done a thousand patients now. And they've had better results, more high quality results with not a single incident of sundowning, which is a huge issue for patients of agitation, confusion in the ICU because they're at home in their unfamiliar surroundings with their loved ones. So this is all possible. We just need to figure out how to get there. Yeah, that's very well stated. I think, Eric, you, you already mentioned the barriers, which, you know, I'm a very optimistic, positive person, but I just really dismayed, you know, by some of the barriers that we could overcome if people and organizations decided they wanted to. I think it's going to take consumerism. It's going to take experiences like David mentioned at Mayo, more publicity around those really good stories. I had a personal event, the life event, where I was able to get data onto my phone, which then got taken to the emergency room. And they knew right away what my issue was, so all through the cloud right away. Once I got to the emergency room, they had already shared that data with my hospital. You know, So I was in a different state, in a world-class hospital. The internists or the cardiovascular people were already in on the case You know, from different hospital uh, thousands of miles away. And that all happened because we were sort of in the same system. And you know, the example of Mayo is kind of, they're all in the same system. We need to extrapolate those examples to external systems. And that's when true digital transformation will occur. It goes back to leadership in part again, we need to keep pushing and as leaders, and then the consumer has to rise up and demand. And we're starting to see that because with these sort of stories, people are starting to realize, wow, that saved my life. Wow, I wanna make sure every, every time someone has my data, they're sharing it with others because the tech is there. It's just the will to do it. I couldn't agree more, Ed. And, you know, great comments, Dr. Nace. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the current concerns in the healthcare system. And, Ed, you made the great point just a few seconds ago about how consumers have to demand change. And, you know, we see all the this litany of concerns. And I agree with you. Now is the time to be optimistic. I mean, there's there's almost hope in, you know, seeing the adversity, you know, there's opportunity in this. And, you know, one of the bigger opportunities too is the providers being able to, to demand different things too. You know, we talk about how consumers are going to drive change, but, you know, if we look at the burden reduction and the opportunity for integrated workflows and technology optimization at the point of care, I mean, it's such a great opportunity for us to look at. 
There was a report that came out last year from Medscape, and this is the National Physician Burnout and Suicide Report, and it surveyed physicians, and they said too many bureaucratic tasks were the number one reason for the cause of their distress, and it was 20 percentage points higher than the number two reason that was uh, in the survey. So in thinking about this digital transformation, how is the issue of physician burnout going to play into this? And and how does it relate to tech-enabled workflow optimization? And how do we reconcile this need for documentation and value-based purchasing models with the need for administrative simplification that reduces clerical burden and time spent in the EHR and alert fatigue? I mean, what's the promise here in terms of digital health truly optimizing workflows at the point of care, and then really creating a new paradigm and digital transformation and value? Well, I'll be succinct. The issue of burnout from my colleagues is quite substantial. And again, it's an inadvertent impact of the digitalization, so-called digitalization of the high-tech act. They are trying to avoid what my dad's doctor by spending time looking and giving them a kiss and developing a relationship. <laughs> you know, connecting yeah. with the patient. And avoid, and so what they do is they put aside all the work that they have to enter in the DMR and they do that at home at night and they're up till midnight and they just can't, and they're leaving medicine. They, they're just frustrated. That's a problem we have to solve. And as I mentioned, clipboards, every time I go to my doctor, every, any of that, I fill out clipboards. I don't get it. That's good insights, David. I don't, obviously, I'm not a clinician, so I can't speak directly to it, but I, I do think digital is, can either be an accelerator or a reducer of clinician burnout. And unfortunately, to David's point, it's probably been an accelerator, <laughs> but there are things we can do. And, th- and that's why I see things like, you know, we didn't talk about it when we talked about trends, but voice. I- I'm very hopeful for voice. I did work in the OR at the Cleveland Clinic one day a week in anesthesia. And and I saw a lot of bureaucratic or manual tasks, you know, that are in every OR. And I saw all sorts of opportunities for voice. And, and I think we all know of some examples of how voice can indeed create a better experience and hopefully reduce clinician burnout. I think the main point here, I think that we're saying is any technology that you introduce before you introduce it, make sure it is a reducer of clinician burnout, not an accelerator. So don't let it be a bunch of tech people. And tech people are lovely people but it can't be tech-centric. It goes back to design. Remember in the very beginning, we talked about experience and design. So you got to have your clinicians directly engaged, driving this stuff. I always partnered with a clinician. I never tried to do anything on my own because I knew I was limited. And so it's really critical that we understand the experience or bring someone in that knows the experience and that everything that we design from a tech point of view is all about the experience, whether it's a patient or a caregiver clinician, so that it enables transformation and enables a reduction of burnout, not an increase. Well, guys, I thought we'd shift gears in terms of all this digital transformation. I mean, the end game here is delivering better value and we can't help but, you know, if you look at what is value-based care, I know we focus a lot on cost reduction, but there's these other parts of that triple aim, improving the patient experience, improving population health, and even making it a quadruple aim, which we just talked about with physician burnout and moral injury that's happening right now in this heavily entrenched fee-for-service environment. And, you know, I I just want to think, you know, obviously digital health is not a panacea. It's not going to cure everything. It's not going to solve all of our problems. But there is a moment in time where I can't help but think when I was in grad school, you know, we were learning about that iron triangle of healthcare, access, cost, quality. And then, you know, they were saying, you know, you can only have two out of three. You could have, you know, access for everyone. 
in high quality, but it's going to cost like an insane amount of money, astronomical. And you could just flip the different vectors every which way, but you only get two out of three. But in this, what about this promise of value-based care? I mean, we have to think about health equity and social justice, improving outcomes, delivering population health, addressing the manifestation of chronic disease. And there's this promise, I think, or there's this future-minded state of where digital health can go. And, you know, in, in trying to address social determinants, obviously there's this opportunity that I think is bubbling up around precision health and, and really creating a broader application than just genomics-driven care, but it's really reflecting the need to tailor our healthcare system that's really specific to the requirements of that individual and having contextual knowledge around their behaviors, the environment, their genomics, of course, and, and having that, that level of precision to prevent disease and then engaging patients in the right way. So I just thought in terms of the future of value-based care and technology transformation, can you speak a little bit about what the future holds in terms of maybe getting into the digital transformation, let's say version 4.0, I guess, of this? You know, What does this look like in terms of delivering precision medicine and comparing that with the evidence bases as well? The one thing I'll say here is, I think it comes down to aligned incentives. Yeah. And that's probably the biggest, well, one of the biggest challenges, right, barriers and opportunities for value-based care to really hit its stride, I, I do think it's the right way to go. So an example would be, you know, we deliver RPM solutions today, remote patient monitoring that help ensure that patients don't get admitted. So in the past, you had a certain uh, prognosis, diagnosis, you would be admitted. Today, we can say, hey, instead of being admitted, wouldn't you rather just stay at home? So that's what we do. So we reduce readmissions by a certain percent. Well, guess what? That's a negative impact revenue-wise to the provider, right? Because now this case is no longer inpatient and you're not going to generate all that revenue, but you still have all these fixed costs of this very large building and very strong professionals inside that building. So we have to figure out how to align the incentives a bit better. And I think in a lot of the experiments that are being done, like hospital at home, I think hospital at home is a big, big part of the future, definitely aligned with value-based care. And they're seeing when they can do these projects where they can align the incentives, they're seeing great benefits of the triangle, everything, reduce costs, same or better quality. Uh, the experience, to David's point, like at Mayo, the experience much better. Who would want to be in a hospital, right? As much as we love our hospital and how great the people are, we'd rather convalesce at home. So I think aligned incentives is one of the key things. If we could tackle that, I think uh, some of the other things would come more into focus. Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, we have found models that head in that direction. You know, Medicare Advantage has been popular because it does start to align the incentives between payer and provider. We've had a lot of success in, in how do you, like in that environment, because the incentives are aligned, how do you get the provider to finally say, okay, it's in my interest to make my clinical information available around this contract with the payer. And it's in the payer's interest to say, listen, I'm going to let you see the claims data in a way that I'll integrate with the clinical if you give it to me. And we'll work together to achieve the same goal. My gosh, my friend Mark Gantz, who just left Canby after 18 years, he captures it so well. You know, Mark said, every one of these organizations, practices, physician practices, healthcare systems, payers, life science companies in healthcare, they all have the same mission. Employers, whoever self-insured, they all have the same mission, to improve the health and wellness of our patients, members, employees, consumers of our product. They all have the same mission. Why aren't they working together? 
And that's where the goal is. How do you align those incentives? I think, Ed, you got it right. Well, I want to take that point you were making, uh, both of you, uh, Edward and David, and uh, there's a great question from the audience, and they just wanted you to comment on, you know, you have these health systems that are anchored in to fee-for-service, and, you know, there's an addiction to that revenue and heads and beds, and the question is really around, is the real issue here in value-based care how to get physicians and other providers aligned? with the right setting so that they can treat patients in the right way. I mean, I guess the question is really around these old incumbents that are in these legacy kind of fee-for-service models. Are they going to drive future transformation or should we be looking at more upstart models like we referenced earlier, like the ChinMed, Iora, Oak Street? Could you both speak to that in terms of, you know, some of the legacy models and, you know, how to get off the fee-for-service train? Yeah, I think one is you need to very actively experiment. I've been part of some great organizations and that's definitely what we did. So take risk, go at risk, try new models. I think you can even set up demonstration sites. So if you need to, and I can't say I've never done what I'm about to say, but I've thought about this. I brought, I brought this up in organizations in the past. And that is, why don't we start a new subsidiary organization that does nothing but value-based care. If it's too hard to do because of all the legacy that we have, let's start from scratch as if we were a new entrant ourselves and start acting that way. And so you would start a new practice or a new payer product and try it from scratch. And it might be right next door across the street. It might be all virtual. But I think you need to take aggressive steps because the steps that we've seen, and I'm speaking generally, I know there's multiple pockets of excellence, but if we're going to get to scale, we can't be taking incremental steps anymore. We need to try something a little bit more radical. So we've given, I think, a lot of ideas throughout this uh, time together, what some of those ideas might be. But that's another one. It's just start something brand new from scratch, a subsidiary uh, spinoff, and watch it perform, learn from that. And then as you gain success, retroactively bring back those best practices into the legacy organization. You captured it, take risk. Go out, yeah. find partners, take innovation, and manage the risk by separating it off. A separate organization makes sense. I like it. I mean, it's going to come down to bold leadership and innovation and lack of fear to experiment and, and, and take risk. I mean, we have to know the trends and where the industry is going. Well, we are up on our time, gentlemen, but before we end our panel discussion, we have a big announcement. I am so excited to tell you, stay tuned, but we are launching healthcare's biggest center of excellence. I mean, what could possibly happen when the flag bearer of value-based transformation meets a coming-of-age technology pioneer? So there is a joint venture happening between the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative and Innovacer to really create a center of excellence to catalyze value-based care transformation. Dr. Nace, I'm so happy to, to be working with you and your team on this, and I can't wait to you know, have some more formal announcements here coming up in the, in the coming months. Eric, this is so exciting. This is the nation's first center of excellence for value-based care. And you and I have been talking about this, what, for two years now? ACLC, Innovacer, you know, it's great coupling. Thought leadership extraordinary across the country with technology. I think this is awesome. Let's do it. I think we'll make Ed happy. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we have a Herculean task, but it takes a village to make it work. But together, we can care as one. Thank you so much for your time today.